0: Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. This scripture put me in mind this morning of a poem from one of my favorite living poets, Billy Collins, who used to teach uh, at CUNY up at Lehman. He wrote a poem talking about what it's like to have a freshman in college taking an intro to poetry class. His poem goes like this. He says, I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water-ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But, all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. that's how I feel with a passage like this when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Our inclination is to want to tie that verse to a chair with rope and beat it to tell us what does this mean. And I invite you this morning for the next few moments to explore what Jesus is saying to us and to listen for what he is doing in our minds and in our hearts with this truly difficult word. And I invite us to do this in a way that keeps our eyes on the author on the shore. Jesus did not give these words out of thin air. The, this, this passage, this gospel from today, is at the end of a lengthy discourse that takes up the majority of John chapter 6. And it comes on the heels of one of the few miracles recorded by all four gospel writers, the feeding of the 5,000. This, in fact, is how John chapter 6 begins. With 5,000 men, plus women and children, gathered to listen to Jesus. As the day wears on and they get hungry, the disciples tell Jesus to send them away so that they can find some food, but Jesus says, no, let us provide for them. All they can find, though, is a little boy who has a sack lunch of five loaves and two fish. And they say, what are these among so many? But Jesus takes this small lunch, prays and gives thanks over it, and miraculously provides bread, not just so that everyone could have a nibble. That would be miraculous enough. I mean, 5,000 men plus women and children. We may be talking... 15,000-20,000 15 20000 people, Madison Square Garden, five loaves, two fish. Jesus does not merely provide a nibble for all of them, which would be a miracle. He provides until they are full. And then, he launches into this discourse, which is rightly known by the I am statement that dominates it. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of of life. It's as if he's saying, the bread I just fed you, the bread you just ate, well let me tell you something, I'm actually the bread that gives life. You see friends, bread is a reminder that we are dependent beings. We depend on something outside of ourselves for survival. We are not self-sufficient. We are not self-existent. We have to have something outside of us enter into us to give us life. But Jesus presses the point further. Yes, we need something outside of ourselves to sustain us. But, even a miraculous provision of physical bread isn't enough to give us life. Which calls to mind the story from the Hebrew scriptures in the Exodus narrative Jesus himself alludes to here in the text. What these people experience is essentially the same as what the children of Israel experienced in the wilderness. For forty years they witnessed the miraculous provision of manna. Six days a week It simply appeared outside the camp, and people gathered as much as they needed for the day, and God sustained them. The thing about the manna was, miraculous provision though it was, the next day, they still needed to go get more. His hearers in this day, likewise, had received a miraculous physical provision, but they would hunger again, even as the children of Israel did. See, friends, the manna and the five loaves and two fish are at one and the same time a reminder and a sign. They're a reminder, as I mentioned a moment ago, that we need something outside of ourselves to give us life because we are not self-existent. But they are a sign as well. A sign of something greater. Of a bread that gives life not just for another day that gives life everlasting. A bread that doesn't just become one with us, but a bread that makes us one with God. That's startling. That's mind-blowing. It has been the project of religions around the world to make us humans one with the divine. And it is a project of religions the world over and some try to craft Christianity into this same mold to make our project, we need to become one with God. The goal is right, the means is wrong. Jesus says, yes, union with God is possible but it comes through me, the bread of life who does not go up to heaven to make us one with God, but who brings heaven down to earth to make God one with us. You see, it is a reminder and a sign. And then Jesus presses further, because at the very moment where he could have just spiritualized the whole thing, he decides to double down on the physicality of it all. He says, no, actually, my body is real meat. Some of you might wonder why it's been said that you can say Jesus is a liar or a lunatic or a lord or the Lord, but, but you can't say he's a great moral teacher. You might wonder, why would someone say that Jesus is a lunatic? Well, for things like this, right? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. If someone said that to you on your commute tomorrow, you would get to the other side of the train. Okay? Jesus doubles down and presses in. What is he doing? It's precisely this move from what we can easily understand to what is beyond our grasp that sometimes makes what Jesus says or what Jesus does so perplexing to us. And friends, make no mistake, Jesus intends to perplex us. You say, well, why would he do that? That doesn't seem very kind. I mean, I'm a teacher. I don't try to confuse my students. Why would Jesus do that? He does it, friends, because it is so easy, especially for those of us who claim to be his followers, who are walking along in the crowd. It's so easy for us to turn Jesus into a caricature upon whom we thrust all our wishes, all our hopes, all our dreams, we write him into our narrative and make him the miracle provider whose primary job is to give us a hashtag blessed life. We thrust upon him all the values and beliefs and desires we've carried with us through life and we intend for him to do for us whatever we ask. That's what was going on with the crowd that day. They expected a military messiah who would kick out Rome and reestablish the kingdom of David. No wonder his words to them and to us are so confounding. No wonder his actions around us and in the world are so perplexing. And friends, when we hear these words from Jesus that stagger our imagination, we realize that Jesus is not who we thought he was. And that's why he perplexes us. To expose what we really believe about him. He is stimulating our curiosity and revealing to us what we really want and what we really love. And friends, Jesus will not be our mascot. And for many, even many professing followers of Jesus, this is too much. The perplexity Jesus brings by his words leads to abandonment. The many walk away. They followed him no more. And Jesus introduces us, in a sense, to ourselves with this penetrating question. Do you also wish to go away? If I am not the caricature you made me to be, if I am not the mascot of your pet project, but if I really am the Lord, the bread of life, will you also go away? Friends, I want us to hear Peter's rhetorical question in response Lord, to whom can we go? That question is many things, no doubt. No doubt it's an affirmation of faith in Jesus, that Peter has discovered that there is no one like him, that Jesus may be a perplexing Messiah, but he is Messiah nonetheless. And yet this question also betrays something about Peter. Have you thought about this? This question betrays that Peter has actually spent some time thinking about whether there are any other options. Lord, to whom can we go? Like, I've thought about it. And yes, it's an affirmation of faith. I'm trusting you. You're the Holy One of God. But Peter himself has walked the path of perplexity and doubt, and in this moment he is comparing Jesus to all the other options and concludes that there is no other option. I've considered whether you're a liar or a lunatic, but I've concluded that you are the Holy One of God. This question presupposes a prior investigation of the claims of Jesus. Friends, far from trying to silence perplexities and doubts within himself, when Jesus exposes those perplexities within us, our temptation may be to say, oh, well, we need to, like, cover them up, put them in a box, and never think about that again, for fear that we might walk the path of abandonment. We don't want that. Peter actually shows us that his perplexity stimulated not abandonment, But investigation. Who is this Jesus? Maybe he's not who I thought he was, but who is he in truth? And what Peter discovers is that everything about Jesus is perplexing. His origin is perplexing. Remember, this is the Gospel of St. John. How does the Gospel of St. John begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Perplexed. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's the origin of of the human life of Jesus, the incarnate life of Jesus, and it boggles the mind. His origin is beyond our comprehension. Peter could see that. Furthermore, Peter could see that Jesus' whole life to that point was perplexing. His actions, his words constantly blew his mind. Jesus was far beyond what Peter could comprehend and understand. And friends, sometimes when you follow Jesus, you become more perplexed the longer you go. Jesus will not be our mascot. We will not tame him. But friends, what Peter could not see in this moment in John 6 would be the perplexing end of Jesus' life. His crucifixion, in which Jesus would be abandoned not merely by faithful followers, I'm sorry, faithless followers, but by God Himself, such that he would cry out in the words of the psalmist, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Everything about Jesus is perplexing. And yet his story does not end at the cross. For three days later, he proved he was no liar. He proved he was no lunatic. He proved he was the Lord by rising from the dead. Every claim he made was vindicated as he walked out of that tomb. No one expected an empty grave. What a fitting turn of events for this perplexing Messiah. Friends, in his resurrection, he shows that he died for the perplexed. He died for the doubtful. He died for those who do have trouble maintaining their faith. He died to give us faith. He died in our stead for sins not His own to make us His own. And friends, what that means for us this day is that whatever is perplexing you about Jesus, about what He says, or about His work in the world, He's big enough to handle your complexity. He's big enough to handle your questions. He's big enough to handle your doubts. You don't have to run and hide or bury those things. Maybe seek out a friend, seek out, uh, seek out Jake or Ben or Jim or Nancy or a faithful friend here and walk through those things. But you do, not need, you do not need to hide in your doubt or your perplexity. He died to give you faith. and He has brought you even to what might appear to be a dark night of the soul. Brought you there for healing and restoration because he's safe and he's powerful. You don't have to walk away because you don't understand. The words of St. Anselm we believe that we may understand. And that's why I love how every week we take up these words in John 6, these perplexing words, and we ask in faith grant us, gracious Lord. So to eat the flesh of your dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made pure by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood. And then after communion, we thank God for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, but I don't understand how that works. It's a piece of bread, not a piece of flesh. It's a cup of wine, not a vial of blood. I know then we go on to pray, do we not, and thank you for assuring us in these holy mysteries. These things we could not have come up with on our own. These realities that took divine revelation for us to see. We thank you for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members and heirs, living members of his body and heirs of his eternal kingdom. So friends, I invite you again today with all your perplexities and with all your doubts to come to Jesus. He is a faithful Savior. Don't shy away from him as if you have to be ashamed for not understanding everything. Friends, who could? Take him again by faith. Take him in your hearts. And the peace of Christ be upon us all. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. Produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org/giving. Thank you.